Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. I guess all of you will have read by now that on Friday, 20 August, the National People's Congress of China adopted the Personal Information Protection Law, or PIPL, P-I-P-L, that will enter into force come November 1st. 73 days between adoption and entry into force is a very short deadline for compliance, especially for a wide-ranging and complex law such as the PIPL. Although many details remain unclear for the time being, during today's episode we will try to guide you through the main characteristics of the new Chinese data protection law. And rest assured, as usual, Kay and I, as well as the rest of our privacy intelligence colleagues here at TrustArc, have got you covered. Expect a lot more information on the China PIPL in the coming weeks and months. But first, let's help you get started with the compliance preparations. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So the unexpected question, Paul, I'm, I'm debating what to go Uh-oh. with. All right, I'm going with this one. Who is your newest friend? Hmm, I think that might be you. You know what? I was going to say pretty much most of the ones that I have come to know better, of course, have been new partners uh, through our partnership program. But you're right. If I was to actually say who is a friend that has become a friend over this time, it would you're right. It would absolutely be you. Um, That's the funny thing, because, I mean, we've only... Well, I mean, everybody knows by now, we've only met once in person for about an hour. And for the rest, all of it is online conversations. But looking and back in that in hour, recent we years, had no idea that no. <laughs> how much we would enjoy each other's company. I was trying to, to understand what TrustArc was and who all these people were and what your role within the organization and within the team would be. And it was just probably like a rabbit staring into the headlights of a car, like what's <laughs> happening here? I do remember thinking, who's this guy? He's just he's just smiling and staring at everybody. <laughs> it felt he's pretty much watching. like that. Yeah, I mean, it felt pretty much like that. And I mean, there is a group of friends I got acquainted with and that have become really good friends in the past three or four years. But that's before you. And since the world shut down, I don't think I've made any new friends. There's um, no one after me, so... <laughs> <laughs> Where would I have met new people? I mean, randomly in front of my house. <laughs> there, there we go. So, so for, for Paul, it is not before COVID or the pandemic. It's before K and after K. And if I'm the yeah, division in your life, that's... <laughs> We're going to leave that one right there where it lays. Okay. Oh, well. Let's talk about China. So Let's. 
it's not like there's anyone listening to this that at any point in time have not heard that China's personal information protection law is now, it's going to be live. It's been finalized. And they came out, I believe, with the final translation Monday. No, Friday night. Friday night. Was it Friday? Well, no, was, there was another one that came out after the weekend. Yeah, there are there multiple ones, but the one I've been using is actually the one created by Stanford University. They have a, a special China team within the, the legal faculty that is, uh, that is working on this. And they have made a translation that was already available Friday night, which is, which is pretty amazing if you, if you come to think of it. Yeah, that is true. Uh, the, but yeah, the, official, think... the official English version from the Chinese government isn't available yet. There is one from China Law Translate, and there is one from Stanford's DigiChina Cyber Policy Center. So, knowing the answer myself here, Paul, I'm going to sit here and say, okay, what's your vote? Is it GDPR-ish? Is it LGPD-ish? Because I see elements of both. I see elements of both. Well, I mean, foundational, it's GDPR-ish, because also LGPD is GDPR-ish. Right. But it might be closer to LGPD than to GDPR, to be honest. That's what I was thinking in some of the terminology that they used and uh, the things, especially the trusted agent and terminology like that. I'm like, wow. So, of course, they modeled after GDPR, but it seems like they took more of a Brazilian flair. Somehow, although I think what they mainly did is take a Chinese flair. (laughs) Now, they are distinctly Chinese in this approach. I love it. So... Let's talk about the first thing then. Let's talk about what's the what's the biggest difference that you can think of that companies need to think about if they are subject to this. What's the biggest thing they need to know? Whether or not they're subject to it or Well, first of all, yes, they need to know whether or not they are subject to it. And that is the case basically if you are doing business in China or if you're targeting people in China or processing personal data in China. So that's very comparable to both GDPR and LGPD. Very straightforward. If China is involved in your processing operations, it is highly likely that you are in scope of the PIPL. which At some level. At some level, which almost automatically also comes with uh, data localization requirements, because that is the main rule under PIPL. Data needs to be in China unless you have a really good reason why it should not be. They call that truly needed. So if it is truly needed that data goes abroad, there are some options or there will be some options. But in principle, data localization is the name of the game here. Also good to know is that the law applies both to the private and the public sector. That is one of the main changes, I think, between the first drafts that we saw and the final version. Although as yet, I'm not completely convinced to what extent the Chinese government authorities will completely fall under this law or whether it might only be parts of the government or maybe only uh, regional or provincial governments that would be involved. I'm, I'm just not sure. Right, right. One of the things that stands out to me is not only that, but also how it combines the different laws. It doesn't combine it. It refers to and must interact with the other laws in China that have been coming up, the China cybersecurity law being one of them. So in the the PIPL, God, it has to have a better name than PIPL. PIPL? Something. But <laughs> with PIPL, 
that it also has specific provisions for large tech companies or for utility providers. Yes, tell, tell us more about those. So with the large utility or with the utility providers, they have other requirements in there or specific requirements. And this is just specifically in China. So this isn't going to really impact anyone else out of China. But I just thought it was interesting that inside China, they're utility providers. And I have to do more digging into exactly what do utility providers qualify for them. But it's infrastructure, essentially. I don't know if China had previously had requirements for these utility infrastructure. I, they're not interchangeable. I get that. So someone ransom wearing the electric company or trying to do the fire sale, as in one of the popular movies here in the U.S. a few years back, of holding the entire country hostage because it cuts off the water supply, the electric supply, the the gas, the oil, the, the everything that you need. Are they also rolling in the, the internet service providers and the, the technology infrastructure of the company? From what I've read so far, that seems to be the case and that indeed also big tech will be covered by these major exemptions. And this is not an exemption in a positive way, but an exemption you need to do more than just... Right. So... And clarify for me, because there's been so much with the PIPL that I've been going and looking at. I haven't dug into some of these nuances. Clarify for me, if you've looked at it, if the exemptions for the large tech companies are encompassed within these infrastructure exemptions, or if they really are considered two separate things, but although they might cross-populate in some ways. I'm not you sure know? yet. I'm not okay, sure. Okay, you yet. haven't dug into the nuances either. Okay, no, so let's that's, make a... that's, I've only read the law th uh, thrice, so it's uh, um, it, it, that, that, that there's still some more reading to, to be done and some more cross-referencing. But, for example, if you are a, a major tech company, you are even bound to stricter data localization requirements and you have fewer options to get data out of China. Now, does um, it seem to you they're targeting anything in particular? <laughs> <laughs> no, I couldn't think Not of any company. company. No, no, I couldn't think of any but any GAFAM company that that uh, would be covered here. Um, but definitely targeting a sector of the common industry, the the major fang big tech companies. That's what they're going after. Absolutely, and what is considered to be a big company also what is going to be considered as a large-scale data processing operation is one of the many points of guidance that we still have to look forward to. Um, right. Well, but I mean, be frank, out of GDPR, they've still never qualified what a large amount of data is either. No, that is true, because there it is, it is clear that it is specific, not just about It's not just about the numbers, but also about the context. And from the Chinese law, what I read, it is only about the numbers. So it is easier to yeah. put a number to it. Exactly. So we'll see. But as you point out in our blog, and we'll give you the link to the blog, and we'll have a white paper coming out. Between now and the white paper, we'll have lots of checklists and resources for you explaining all the details of this. Biggest thing being, you have to be compliant by November 1st. So you don't have a lot of time. But the other part being what Paul just referenced is that there is a lot in the law that is dependent on guidance coming out from the, the government entity. And as we know, guidance doesn't tend to come out quickly 
And we love the fact that they're stepping up and they're providing the law. And a lot of provisions in here uh, are really, really good. I'm sorry for the companies that have to comply with them, but they're really, really good data protection provisions. I love that China is stepping it up this way. And it looks like there's going to be a battle between China and Europe of who's going to drive data protection law perhaps now. But it's interesting that so much, Paul, so much will be determined later. Yes. Well, I mean, that was true for GDPR as well. Let's be, let's right. be honest. And the only advantage that we had with GDPR is that it was building on an existing privacy law where there was already some guidance available from the past. So it wasn't all that urgent. But we've seen the same in Brazil. I did a, a webinar yesterday. So that was on, on Wednesday, August 25th on Brazil, together with one of the five directors of the Brazilian DPA. They are working very hard to uh, to get all the guidance out, but they can't do everything overnight. And it needs to go into consultation as well. They put out a consultation on the concept of controller processor and had 3000 responses in a non-data protection sensitive country like Brazil. So to work <laughs> through all, all of those, <laughs> of course, and to work through all of those 3000 responses, yeah. even just reading them, that costs a lot of time, let alone also making sure that they are somewhat reflected in the final results. So I expect that to be the same for China, although I have no idea if there will be any public consultation on these guidelines. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. I think it's really interesting. So I'm going to, you know what, I was going to say, I'm going to skip past some of the basic things on the, the definitions, oh, which let, is the let enforcement. Me just say one thing on definitions, because I think that is a confusing part of this law. There are only four official definitions in the law. Only four in the final article. There are some others that are defined throughout, right. but then you re really need to look for them. But it is not like in any of the other privacy laws, I think, that I've seen so far, that there is yeah, just an like article providing all the definitions. Yeah, it's, it's more like a contract where you provide some key definitions, but these are in, in addition to all of those that are defined within the contract. So, yeah, they define them within the law. You're right. They wouldn't sign a contract like that either. I would just insist that there be a, a provision on that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay, why so I'm not a contract lawyer. Um, let, let's talk about some, some very specific definitions here that might throw you out and who and how this helps you determine some of what you need to be. Okay, let's start with the personal information handler. Yes. This is an official definition, I think. Yes, it is. And this is the organization or individual that autonomously decides on the handling purposes of personal data. So basically, this is what under EU law and Brazilian law would be the data controller and what under California law would be the business. The business. And I love the fact that they use the word handling and not processing. I don't. That it's confusing. I, I sat there and go, I, I love, well, maybe it's the translation. Could be. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the translation. But just thinking of the handling versus processing, which as opposed to the concept of controller and processor, which truly don't meet the commercial uses of the definitions of the words. We, we know what they are, but you get into the nuances and it starts getting really sticky. But processing isn't confusing whatsoever. It's everything. It's whatever True. you do with it. You can look at the data and you're processing it. Literally, look at it sideways as it's jumping across the ocean and that's processing. Mm -hmm. 
But maybe it's a translation issue. But I like it. Maybe it is, but I would say that it is pretty close to what we in Europe consider to be data processing because yeah. the law defines it as anything from collecting to deletion. And they give some examples with a lot of et ceteras, but <laughs> it's not a such as, it's just et cetera coming down to the same. Right. It's a clear definition. Anything you do with personal data basically would be considered as personal data handling under... under right. And when we look at that, then the other side of it is the entrusted parties, right? Yes, that would be sort of the processor or the service provider, anybody who would be processing personal data on your behalf. Right. And I was looking up, I know they provide a definition of sensitive personal information. Yes. But I don't know that that has changed from what they've had before, because I believe China, and you know I love to track the definitions of sensitive personal information for countries. Section 2 of the law, Section 2 of Chapter 2, and that starts with Article 28. So information that, once leaked or illegally used, may easily cause harm to the dignity of natural persons, grave harm to personal or to personal or property security, including information on biometric characteristics, religious beliefs, specially designated status, medical health, financial accounts, individual location tracking, and here it comes, etc. etc. Yes. So in 2019, and I don't, let's see, I did. Okay, so in 2019, I had updated my chart where I tracked the definitions of sensitive personal information. And at that time, I had added China. And so China was already on the list as having, as protecting sensitive personal information in the laws that they did have but basically not giving a definition, essentially relying on any discrimination, but they did provide some examples. So I love the fact that they did include a biometric data as sensitive personal information and location data, neither of which is surprising. So there we go. So let's talk about what else do our customers need to know. We have the whether or not you're qualified with it. We have the definitions of what it is you need to do. The enforcement we were going to talk about, which not only provides pretty significant enforcement penalties, up to 5% of the company's global revenue, global Mm -hmm. turnover. And of course, then a, a specific dollar amount as well. And I believe it goes down to 2% for less. No, that was in a previous version. So the okay. basic violations of the law can lead, up to, can lead to fines of up to 1 million yuan, which is around 155,000 US dollars. And grave violations up to 50 million yuan, 7.7 million dollars, or 5% of annual revenue. On top of that, also the individuals in charge can be, uh, can be fined and given personal sanctions. So anybody in charge or directly responsible for a processing operation that is wrong can be fined between 10 and 100,000 yuan. And if the violation is grave, it can be between 100,000 and 1 million yuan. And if the violation is grave, it could also include a prohibition to hold a number of professional positions for a certain period of time. So it could, for example, mean that you would not be able to 
to, to be a DPO or to be responsible for large data processing operations. Right, which is very interesting. But, okay, so we have a lot to cover between the definitions and whether or not you are subject to it, to the enforcement if you mess it up. But those are two of the things you need to know in advance. Those are the three. Those are the three things you need to know in advance is are you subject to it? If so, what's the definitions? What's the qualifiers? And then what's the penalty if you don't abide? Knowing that you need to comply by November 1st, even if not everything is specifically qualified. But in between here and there, there are some key provisions in here. Let's look at the lawful grounds of processing. Oh, yes. So you they have are to fun. have a legal basis in Article 13. Let's talk about the, the legal bases. What, what's available to process data or to handle data? So, first of all, we have consent. And consent, like basically anywhere else, needs to be freely given and based on full information and needs to be an active choice of the individual. So also no pre-tick boxes and things like that. That is, that is the first one. Also the necessity to conclude or fulfill a contract, including for HR, is a, a, a possible legal ground. The compliance with legal requirements, obviously, and also urgent medical needs. Then you can take uh, a look to process personal data in order to secure the property of an individual in case of emergencies. That is very particular. I've never seen that one before. For news reporting and similar activities in the public interest, and also when the information has already been made, pu made public in a lawful way. So not if the information was stolen, but if you or a third party has made it publicly available, then it can also be, uh, be reused. Now, they did caveat that with along the lines of unless the individual expressly refuse to let you use that publicly disclosed information or if there's a major in influence or a major impact on individuals' rights and interests by using that public information. So they did caveat that a little bit, which I found very Absolutely, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and also the the emergency provisions are are pretty interesting to see how yeah, those when you will dig be, into uh, them will be used. Now, so, one of the things was that they don't have legitimate interests. No, they do not. And I understand that there has been some discussion about it, but we haven't seen it executed. It's not part of the final text. It also, I believe, wasn't part of the, the initial versions of the, of the law. So, no, for companies, they'll have to rely upon the contracts or a consent. Yeah. Or other grounds, if there are other grounds, but yeah, for tip, but for typically for business, business yeah. processing, yeah, they'll have to do that. Now they did insert provisions related to the uh, processing of employee data in the final versions. They exempt the processing of their pie from the collection of their consent. So again, we're seeing that division of consent doesn't really apply to employee relationships. So that would that would be really good as well. Now, they go into a lot of consent and provisions on consent, but they also address uh, so children younger than 14 must obtain consent from parents. Now, one of the things to keep here is we're starting to see a little bit of this division in ages among global regulations of children. So here yes. in the U.S., we've always had under 13 with I, always, always in the history of privacy. We've had the protection of children under 13. But in Europe, it's under 14, I believe. 
in under the GDPR, it's anywhere between 13 and 16. Yeah, depending and, and, on and the member state. And yeah, the nation can go up to 16, but standard is considered under 14 or up to 14. I don't remember. But it, it, it really depends. It depends. I think every bit, I think if it were to be standardized now, I think it would lead to probably uh, 13 rather than 16. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And that's kind of like California. They have special provisions for between 13 and 16. Under 13 has other provisions. So we're starting to see a little bit of a division here, but it seems to center right around that 13, 14 age frame with a little, sometimes a little bit more consideration up to 16. GDPR does not allow member states to go above 16. So you have that. So what about automated decision-making and facial recognition? Ooh, there are some restrictions there, but I do not have those top of mind yet. You know, I had those pulled up. Trust me, this thing is so complicated and waiting on the translations. People have been studying this for days, which is why more information is going to be coming. But there is informational automated decision making I pulled from the Future of Privacy Forum Mm -hmm. because they've been following this closely. And they have under it, it refers to activities that use personal information to automatically analyze, assess, and decide via computer programs, individual behaviors, and habits, interests, and hobbies, or situations leading to finance, health, or credit status. But I do not believe there is any provision that the results of which must have a significant legal or otherwise impact on individuals. So I have to dig into that a little bit more. But the facial recognition is interesting because China's been one of the biggest countries for facial recognition. They're as bad as some of the places in Europe and using facial recognition for so much. Right? Well, uh, we're kind of here in the U.S. It's very controversial to use it. A lot of cities and localities forbid it. You can use it after the fact, but you can't use it live. So it's interesting how, how it's going there because we recognize the inherent bite. Well, some places recognize the inherent bias in using facial recognition. So it's interesting. So, but it can, must be used in public areas to, well, in public areas, it must be used to safeguard public security and observe relevant state regulations. So that's one of this. So it's mirroring, as the FPF said, the provisions mirror a growing public awareness in China of the need to regulate the use, the private use of facial recognition technology in public areas more strictly. And they refer back to a case that has particularly gotten attention, but it's really interesting that they're regulating private use of facial recognition technology. Let's be clear there. Uh, rights for individuals. Let's cover those a little bit quickly. Anything you you would basically expect, so a right to know what kind of data is being processed, a right of access, a right of correction, a right of deletion, those all exist under under the Chinese law. However, there is one interesting caveat on deletion, and that is if it is technically hard to realize or not possible at all, then it can be sufficient to just restrict the processing so that basically it can no longer be accessed, but you would still be allowed to keep the data. Again, a nod to China's extreme experience and expertise in technology. Yes, but also another point where we need to await further guidance, because what does it mean when it is technically hard to realize? (laughs) It's kind of like us deleting from backups here in the U.S., 
Well, I mean, ideally, your backups would override each other. So there, I mean, the backups don't keep forever. You, you Once it cycles through, yes. But also the fact if you remove it from a database, sometimes it breaks the database. So it's all these things we've been wrestling with that we recognize, but it's not in the law. So yeah. I like that. Okay, let's talk about the requirements for a DPO or appointing a representative. So having a DPO will become mandatory if you are a large organization. So this goes back to that same definition discussion that we uh, that we had before. But even if you do not need uh, a DPO, you still would need to ensure that you have either a physical presence in China, so an establishment, or if you do not have that, you need a representative. Again, very similar to Europe. Again, very similar to Europe. And again, something that likely needs to be in place by November 1st. And I have no idea how companies are going to do that. Well, some of them may already have DPOs to a point, but it's going to be that establishment or representative clause. And so I'm sure there's businesses popping up all over China now will be your representative. And they're probably going to be pretty expensive, given the fact that people have to do this quickly. Um, It might be that, and I haven't dug into this nuance, that you can appoint a company as your representative. So if you have a company entity in China in order to do business there, maybe that could be your representative. I haven't looked into those. No, I mean, if you have an entity, if you have an entity, then that's sufficient. Well, not a a physical establishment, an actual entity, like you're registered to do business. That's, I think that should be enough. If you, if you are registered to do business, then, then it should be fine. That would be the physical presence that you need to still, you still need to report that to the Chinese authorities. This is the physical presence that I'm indicating, or this is the business that I'm indicating as being being responsible for established my my data processing mm-hmm. operations in China. Or represent but, or yeah. your representative. If they don't consider it a physical establishment because it's only on paper, then, then fine. they could maybe probably can, act as your representative. Maybe so. And there is also a requirement to do a personal information protection influence assessment to determine whether or not the handling purposes and methods are lawful, the influence it has on individuals, whether the security measures are adequate. So this is Article 55. So you have that, and it has to take into account whether it's processing sensitive personal information, if there's automated decision making, if there's cross border transfers, all these kinds of things used. So just take it, people. You're one of your foundational things you need to have in your privacy program is impact assessments. It just needs to happen, and you just need to have it. Uh, the other part that is there is the data training or the training and education that you have to do for employees, another foundational part of a solid privacy program. So with this, Paul, is there anything else that we need to reinforce to individuals? Because I know we're coming, we're probably over our, our anticipated 30 to 40 minute timeline. No, we're more but- or less at that time. But and everything is, where I got to cut out. <laughs> there is there is two more things that that I would uh, like to raise, and that is international transfers, of course. Yes, it's, I said you have to take it into account. Topic. Um, <laughs> and we already mentioned the data localization requirement, but there are options to get data out of China, or as I said before, there will be options to get data out of China. And that's uh, something because, people have been worried about: is the Chinese data localization requirements. Yes, but the thing is that. We are dependent here on the state cybersecurity and informatization department that needs to provide further guidance. Because there are three options. You can pass a formal security assessment. 
You can obtain a certification by a specialized body yet to be approved, or you can use an approved standardized contract. Model clauses, standard contractual clauses, an international data transfer agreement, whatever you want to call it, but they still need to be established. Whether those will be available by November 1st in whatever way or form, we just have to wait and see. That is really good. And the international cross-border transfers is interesting because that's one of the concepts that the UK has publicized with their international data transfer agreements is they have that provision that you can use the standard contractual clauses or whatever required by another country in order to coordinate that relationship, that they give you the ability to comply with other countries' international (laughs) cross-border transfer requirements by using certain things. So there, there seems to be some sort of effort by some countries to make things a little consistent. We're always going to see a little bit of flavor of something different which is fine. We all need different flavors in our life. It makes our privacy program spicy. So, Yeah. The other thing that I still wanted to mention are the data breach notifications. Oh, yes. How did I possibly not go into those? Because this this is already mandatory as of September 1st under Article 29 of the Chinese Data Security Law. But Article 57 of PIPL spells out much more details. So the basic requirement is the same. You need to notify two authorities and individuals in case of potential harm. And And if there's no harm? If there is no harm, then there is no uh, reporting requirement. But if there is a risk of harm... To individuals, right? Do you still have to report to authorities and just not to individuals? Or you don't have to report it? You don't have to report at all the way I understand it right now. Okay. But if there is a risk of harm, you need to inform both authorities and individuals about the categories of data, about the causes of the data breach, about the possible harm that, that can be caused by the breach or the suspected breach. Any measures that you have taken to mitigate these risks and also what measures individuals could take themselves. So that would be a bit like the credit monitoring you have in the United States that can be can be recommended. And also how to contact the individual, the organization. Beautiful. And I don't recall seeing anything about time frame. No, there is no specific time frame mentioned. I believe it is something like uh, within a reasonable time frame or as soon as possible. Timely notification. Generic language like that. But there is no X amount of... um, But do people who are listening, fans who are listening, companies that take this guidance, do keep in mind that it has historically been tradition in Asian countries that data breach notification would have happened if there was a data breach that would impact individuals. Even though it wasn't in law, it was a matter of honor and respect to let people know and so don't rely upon there being missing a time frame to report. Know that in Asia and in China specifically now, it is very much expected you will do the right thing and you will report in as fast a manner as you possibly can without being negligent. Exactly. So that so. is what we can tell you now about China and about China's PIPL. I'm sure there will be Lots more to talk about. And we will get back to China probably in October when there is a bit more clarity, when we get closer to the enactment date of the PIPL. 
And but meanwhile, meantime, expect us to have other resources available at TrustArc. Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, keep an eye out at TrustArc.com. We will soon be launching a microsite where all that information will be put together. And of course, you can always reach out to Kay or myself if you have any specific question or maybe just start a, ch- a chat on our LinkedIn page, Serious Privacy. We're happy to chat there as well. Should you have any other questions or suggestions, reach out to us via seriousprivacy at trustark.com or via Twitter at adpodcastprivacy. You'll find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as EuroPolB. Thank you for listening to this other episode. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of Serious Privacy. And until next week, goodbye. Bye, y'all. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>